Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Welcome to returning guest, Dr. David Madison. I have to say, I'm so sorry that we haven't gotten together for at least three years, I think it was, when I had you on the show before. So welcome back in. Thank you. It's good to be here. And while we're giving welcomes, I want to say a big welcome and thank you to Tim Sledge. Well, just a thank you. A mutual friend of ours. I did not know he was editing this new book that's just come out. He actually messaged me on Twitter about a week ago and said, oh, I've been working with David Madison. He's got this new book. Uh, do you want to help promote it? And I said, well, why don't we do a podcast? So that's how it's kind of all come around. So big thanks to Tim Sledge as well. Oh, yeah. His books are fantastic. Yes, absolutely. So I have so many questions. Your book is called, let me get this up on the screen so I don't get it wrong. 10 Things Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Taught and Other Reasons to Question His Words. And what you're saying is literally just come out as we're doing this recording about a week ago. So I have a lot of questions. I just finished reading the book. I thought it was going to be quite a long book, but as it turns out, it's probably less than 100 pages, isn't it? So you could literally sit here and read this book in just a few hours, couldn't you? Well, the print version comes in at 147 pages. Were you Mm -hmm. looking at the Kindle? I have the Kindle version, yes. That says it's, I think, 88 pages, but in the printed version, it's 147. It is designed to be read in one sitting. It really should be, yeah. I I think I read it in two sittings. I read it just in in bed at night. I started thinking, well, I'm just going to get a start on it because I'm pretty sure this is a long book. But then next thing I know, I'm about up to, well, you have 10 things. I was up to number five or six. And I thought, this book can't (laughs) can't be much longer. He's already halfway through. We're following the pattern of Tim Sledge's most recent books, How to Lead a Meaningful Life and Four Disturbing Questions with One Simple Answer. Right. And you've got another book, 10 Tough Things as well. So you, you're kind of staying with that 10 things theme. <laughs> well, the first book was 10 Tough Problems. Right. Christian Thought and Belief. And that that's 374 pages. Right. So that's not an easy read in one sitting like this one. You know, I try to make it an easy read in terms of being readable and engaging the reader i don't believe in a stuffy academic style right Um, but yeah the uh 10 things christians wish jesus hadn't taught is designed to it's aimed for a christian audience right i was going to ask you who's the intended audience who do you want to read this book i want christians to read it and i want christians who perhaps don't spend enough time reading the gospels Mm. And that's a very common phenomenon. It is true. Most Christians haven't read their whole Bibles, have they? Oh, they haven't. And they have. Well, there was a survey done a few years ago that showed that uh, of Americans, I think the title of the article of the survey was Americans are fond of the Bible, but they don't read it. <laughs> right. And, okay. It's, it's up there on the altar every Sunday at church. Sure. It's on their bedside stand. The Gideons have, way, have given away 2 billion copies. It's in the hotel mm-hmm. room. <clears throat> When's the last time you heard a Christian say, I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to read the whole gospel of Matthew or Mark straight through. I'm going to read the whole gospel of Mark straight through tonight. 
I never have. I know one person who's an evangelical as a pastor, and he does a Bible reading program every year. So he he reads through the entire Bible every year, starting in January. He's got a plan, but he's the only one I know. He's read it through, well, every year for countless years. But other than that, that's more of a rarity, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, people just don't have the time. They have so many other ways to entertain themselves, movies, mm-hmm. TV, sports, you name it. The Bible's not an easy read. No, even it isn't. When you get it, even when you get into the gospel, starting with the first gospel written, the mm-hmm. gospel of Mark. It's that's in narrative true. form, but it still isn't easy reading. And you're not talking about reading through Leviticus or Numbers. I mean, oh, gee. No, I, no. Yeah. When I was in Bible college, I had to read those all, I had to read the whole Bible as a reading plan as well. And I thought, man, this is tough sledding here, you know, going through all the laws and the numbers of all the tribes and, you know, oh my God. (laughs) I just recorded, I'm doing a series of videos about this book Mm -hmm. and I just recorded the third one. I hope to get it up on YouTube later today, but in it, I said, you know, please read the gospels. Please read what Jesus said in the gospels. Mm -hmm. Easy, right? Sure. One more thing. It's a very bumpy ride. It is. You run into these things that Jesus supposedly said, and you say, wow, did he really say that? Mm-hmm. Uh, the book has a website, and on the website, there's a chart of 292 bad, mediocre, alarming Jesus sayings. Mm-hmm. I reread, you know, preparing this book, I reread the Gospels again, as I said, for the umpteenth time in my 78 years, <laughs> right. and I made it. I made an Excel spreadsheet, and in this chart on the book's website, I sorted them into a few categories, preaching about the end time, Mm -hmm. scary extremism, bad advice and bad theology, and then finally, the the unreal Jesus in John's gospel. So there's the chart right on the book's website. Right, so there's more resource, even though it's only, well, depending on which version you get, the Kindle one or the the paperback, 140 pages. Now, I've got a question before I dive into the meat of the book. I've got some questions I wrote out here. And what I was thinking, you talk about this at the beginning of the book. You say, we need to talk about this right away. You have to put a point in there about the reliability of the Gospels, because that's obviously we can talk about that later. I think you mm. you do get into that at the end of the book. But yeah. what, what do you say about your approach? You know, you dive into the problematic sayings of Jesus and all that. But are we going to get into that right off the bat or do you want to put no. that off until later? The four obstacles that stand between us and the real words of Jesus, those are covered in chapter 11. But right. my premise is, Christians, you tell us that the Gospels are the true story of Jesus. If you really feel that way, then you're stuck with these words. Right. Yeah, you have to deal with them. You, you have to deal with them. And a way out of that eventually is we have no way of knowing what Jesus actually said. There are too many obstacles to that, and that's in the 11th chapter. Mm-hmm. But I'm going along with the Christian assumption. You pick up the Gospels, you read this, these narratives, and these are the true stories of Jesus and supposedly the true things he said. And if that's the case, you've got a big problem. Mm. Yeah, big problem. So what exactly is it that is problematic? Okay, obviously you say there's you've got hundreds of potential uh, mm-hmm. you picked out. These are like maybe the top 10 or something. Um, when you look at these sayings, because one thing that struck me about it, for my PhD, I studied narratology, and that's all about characterization and plot and setting mm-hmm. the way a narrative functions. Yeah. And what struck me right away was I thought, okay, I think what David's talking about here is characterization, the, the mm-hmm. character of Jesus as a character in a narrative, he is portrayed by the authors in a certain light, 
What does that say about that characterization as you pick out these 10 sayings? Well, the character varies according to the Gospels. Right. It's not a monolithic no, uh, depiction. No. Uh, in fact, uh, in my 12th chapter, I talk about two versions of Jesus, mm -hmm. one in Mark and one in John. And the challenge I issue to Christians is read the Gospel of Mark straight through. Mm -hmm. do, do that. You know, it'll take about as much time as watching a movie if you do it carefully. Yes, a, a thorough reading. A, a thorough reading, not just casual. If you do it thoroughly, it'll about take as much time as watching a movie. If you're a Christian and if you believe the Bible is the word of God, you should have no problem with that. You should be eager to do it. Right. Somebody once said that everything in the Gospel of Mark could have unfolded in two or three weeks. And the author uses the word immediately, mm -hmm. Greek word immediately, 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. He yeah, a sense to, of urgency in it, yeah. Absolutely. He meant it to unfold that way. Now, I say when you've finished the Gospel of Mark, take a break, have a big glass of wine. Trust me, you'll need the wine. Right. The, next, the next part of the challenge is doing the same thing with the Gospel of John. Right. And you just and set aside a half a day at least. <laughs> and maybe a, a bottle of wine. <laughs> you're in for a big shock. It's a different Jesus. Mm -hmm. Two different theologians different ideas of Jesus. In Mark, Jesus appears out of nowhere. He's a peasant preacher and he's baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. John won't have any of that. His Jesus was present at creation, mm -hmm. okay, and certainly did not need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And, it, you know, it just goes on and on like that. You have, you have these huge Jesus monologues in John that aren't found anywhere else. Mm-hmm. There's almost no ethical teaching in John. There's not much either in, in Mark. Matthew tried to make up for that with the Sermon on the Mount. Luke modified the Sermon on the Mount. He kind of broke it up and shortened it. John just deleted it completely. Mm -hmm. The overwhelming theme of John's gospel is how to earn eternal life. Mm -hmm. That's the promise of John's gospel. Yeah, believe really. in Jesus and you will inherit eternal life. And that's why that gospel has achieved such popularity because it's, mm -hmm. it hammers that it hammers that theme relentlessly. But then when you really stop to look at some of the stuff in John, it's pretty appalling. It's pretty but, troubling. Uh, yeah. But yeah, different narratives, different theologians. They come up with different narratives. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one thing that really struck me is I, I, I thought, okay, David's the first person that's I've, uh, that I've read that's actually said this, but some of the sayings of Jesus, if you didn't know who said them, you would think this is a cult leader that we're describing here. For example, like you have a chapter, be aware of loving too much. For example, yeah. Jesus says, you know, you're got, you have to hate father and mother to follow me. You have to basically like separating you from your family, friends, loved ones, to follow me. If that was David Koresh or Jim Jones or, you know, somebody who said that, you'd go, yeah, that makes sense in the mouth of David Koresh or, you know, mm -hmm. someone like Keith Renere or something like that. But then you go, wait a minute, that's Jesus. And, and he, he himself followed his own advice, apparently. You say when his mother's mother and his, yeah, yeah. you know, they come and want to see him and he's like, who's my mother and brother and father? I don't have any, you know, the, the I don't even know these people. So he's turned his back on his own family. So it appears that he practiced what he, what he preached, I guess. I tell the story in the book, not in great detail. It actually happened that I was, I fell into casual conversation with a devout Catholic woman a few years ago. Mm -hmm. She was going on and on about how beautiful her church was and how wonderful her Jesus is. And so I just brought up Luke 14, 26, and I read it to her. I repeated it to her verbatim, and she flamed out. She got very angry with me. She thought I was lying. Why would I tell such a lie? 
Jesus couldn't possibly have said something like that. She was very angry. She had never heard that verse in the pulpit, obviously. Yeah, she's not going to either. She's not going to either. (laughs) And I've had quite a few Catholic friends tell me that they were never encouraged to read the Bible. So that's true. What what the folks in the pews usually hear from the pulpit is the feel-good verses, Mm -hmm. the things that make Jesus look good. This is exactly right. I mean, I remember as an evangelical, I guess the version of Jesus I had or I inherited was kind of this hippie guru kind of, you know, let's love everyone kind of flower power, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he went around healing people and doing good and, and preaching wonderful things and how to get saved and how to get to heaven and just believe in him and all this kind of stuff. And then after reading your book, what really struck me was that as an ex evangelical, I was like, wow, that's really a, a jarring kind of slap in the face. This is the Jesus that the gospels actually present though. The one you're talking about in your book, isn't it? Yeah. Some serious I mean, problems. Yeah. If you're going to tell me that the, the the gospels are the true story of Jesus, you've got a serious problem. Mm-hmm. That's why the title of the book, 10 things Christians wish Jesus hadn't taught. Mm-hmm. And what are the implications of that for faith? Exactly. Then you have to unpack what are the implications? Well, and that's kind of the next level. I think that you get into in the book, what struck me was on every occasion in each of the 10 examples, you make the point that Christians, A, do not follow the, te- the specific teachings of Jesus, and B, in some cases, they couldn't follow them. So yeah. what about that, that they say a Christian is a disciple of Christ, a little Christ. We follow the teachings of Jesus. That's what Christians say. But well, yet you're Jesus saying do. you can't. You don't. For sure, you don't. Most Christians do not. When it comes to these specifics, there was a few months ago, there was, I think his name was Jeremiah Johnson. He's a, he's a self-styled evangelical prophet. And oh, yes, had, I know. <laughs> he, he had predicted that Trump would be reelected. And then when that didn't happen, mm-hmm. he, he felt compelled to apologize to his audience that he'd got the, he'd got the word, word of the Lord wrong. And he faced a firestorm of Christian hate for having said that. And he was, was stunned. Yeah. And so he said he's going to radically, from now on, follow Jesus. And my I love response, that radically part. What does that even mean? My response was, good luck with that. Right. If you, if you really read what Jesus, I mean, I got a um, Kindle version of his book. And at the beginning of the book, he dedicates the book to his wife and three or four children whom he loves more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, wait a minute. Wait a right, minute. Yeah, you've already violated it. <laughs> you've blown you've, it, Jeremiah. <laughs> you've, already, uh, you've already come into conflict with, um, with what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Christians should have, should have their eyes gouged out and their hands chopped off because every time your eye leads you to sin, Jesus said, pull it out, pluck it out, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, Oh, it's hyperbole. That's where you get into the interpretations, don't you? When you get into a saying like that, there's a million and one explanations of how to get around. Well, clearly didn't mean it literally, clearly, clearly, clearly. But yet that's the pretty plain meaning of what he said. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge problem because they, like I said, they actually can't follow it. You know, and like you point out in the book, why then do Christians have retirements and 401ks and properties and they're saving for their retirement? When Jesus says, do not, specifically, do not store up treasures on earth. Just store up treasures in heaven. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your clothing. God's going to provide all that for you. 
Well, no, no Christian does that. <laughs> you know, they have a savings no. account. They have a retirement. Well, maybe not none, but most evangelicals in America certainly do. Some Christians retire to monasteries and convents sure. to, try, to try to realize that ideal. But uh, that's a very small percentage. The, the vast majority of the folks in the pews aren't interested. Mm-hmm. They just aren't interested. They have their lives to lead. They have their families. They have their jobs. They have their hobbies. They plan for vacations. They plan for retirement. Sure. Exactly in violation of Jesus's words, his command, actually. Well, Luke 14, 26 also said, not only hate family, you have to hate your life itself. What does that mean? How many Christians identify with that? The ones who want to be martyrs, I guess. That's a a strain within Christianity, isn't it? Where I'm willing to be a martyr because that's what Jesus basically said, isn't it? I'm not willing to give up my faith. I'd rather die first. Mm. But that's, again, a rarity, isn't it? Well, I remember, yeah, talking about these prophets, that was something I was tracking a lot back around the election because there wasn't just Jeremiah Johnson. There was loads of them that predicted Trump was going to be reelected. Well, they said he was going to be elected, first of all, then reelected. And, of course, he wasn't, and he was going to be reinstated. And I went through and I just listed out all the biblical verses for what to do with a false prophet. Any (laughs) prophet that predicts, you know, something and it does not come to pass, that prophet should be stoned and all the rest of it. Um, I said, hey, these people are not admitting fault, except for Jeremiah Johnson, as you say, who received a scathing response from his own fellow evangelicals for just admitting he was wrong. So that's the way it went down. Well, now, here's another question then. So we have these problematic sayings. Now, one of the things you point out in both Jesus's and Paul's writing, you talk about, it makes a lot of sense if we understand kind of a hermeneutical paradigm, Jesus and the early Christians both believed that his return was imminent. That was a huge part of their beliefs, the first generation of Christians. Why is that such an important point to make as we look at the the sayings of Jesus, especially predictions of the end times coming very soon? Well, it's important to look at those texts because they just demonstrate that both Paul and Jesus were wrong. Right, it just did not happen. Just flat out wrong. I mean, one of the most embarrassing texts in the New Testament has to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in which he says, in which Paul promises that the uh, the people in the Thessalonian congregation, they were worried that their dead, that their, some relatives had died and they weren't going mm-hmm. to be there when Jesus comes back. And Paul promised them that their relatives would rise. They would be the first to meet mm-hmm. uh, Jesus in the air. And he said, those of us who are left, we will join them in the right. sky. Seems to be including himself in that we. Exactly. <laughs> those yeah. of us who are left. I mean, you, you read the letters of Paul and it's there's an urgency there to accept that Jesus was the resurrected Lord because when he comes back, if you've not done that, you're out of luck. At one point in one of his letters, he said that married people should act as if they were no longer married. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's going to happen soon. Be prepared for it. That's why he discouraged marriage. Yeah, don't get married because I'm coming back so soon. Yeah. No point then, in getting married. And then in Mark's gospel, right from the get-go, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And at his trial, in Mark's gospel, at his trial, Jesus says to those at the trial, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Clearly you know? did not happen. I mean, this has been disconfirmed by history. Right. And I mean, the folly of, of Christians still accepting this, I think a, a poll a few years ago showed that 41% of Americans believe that Jesus will come back by the year 2050? Mm-hmm. Um, Just around the corner. I mean, they're not. <laughs> that's what I always was taught as an evangelical. 
He could come at any time, like a thief in the night. You know, he's coming at any time now. But the thief in the night text, that was aimed at, at people in the first century. Right. And if you had said to the people in the first century, oh, by the way, it might be 2,000 years. Whoa, would, wait a minute. Would, <laughs> are, you, are you nuts? Yeah. We want the Romans thrown out now, not in 2,000 years. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. We'll be long dead before that happens. Well, and then this is the other issue. You talk about, okay, if, if the Gospels, let's say John specifically, Jesus was, you know, he the word was with God, the word was God, which is ironically on a side note, a, a verse that I used to use to combat Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, because they say the word was a God. But anyway, it's another story. But if Jesus was divine, the God man, as the Christian theology teaches, he was fully human, he was fully divine. Why then is he getting this kind of stuff wrong? As you say, <laughs> if he's truly the God man, that he should know everything. He should be omniscient. Uh, mm -hmm. He should know the future. So how come then he didn't, he, how, how could he get this wrong? How could he get so much wrong? Right. Um, that is, that falsifies Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, in a recent article, I said, there are three things that really falsify Christianity. The problem of suffering, the problem of the resurrection stories, which don't hold water at all. They've been analyzed thoroughly, completely, and they do not stand up as history at all. And mm -hmm. then finally, the, the third strike against Christianity is just so many bad things that Jesus had to say. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make sense. And what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. On a kind of a related note, I was thinking when, when I was reading through that section where you talk about how Christians don't or even can't actually apply the words of Jesus in their lives. I remember reading an article a few years ago where it was by an evangelical too, but he was asking the question, how is it that Christians actually apply the Bible to their lives? And so he went into mm -hmm. several churches and he, he conducted surveys and polls, just asked sort of the garden variety Christians, tell me exactly, specifically, how you as a Christian apply the Bible and the or the teachings of Jesus. And of course, as we already can suspect, they could not articulate the process between reading the Gospels, let's say, and then actually putting into practice. They couldn't make that link. And it makes me think, you know, as a former pastor, you're a former pastor like me, one of the big things about preaching sermons is, of course, we had to not only explain whatever text we were looking at in the sermon, we had to apply it, which is that's what we did the heavy lifting for him, didn't we? So that, mm -hmm. that was kind of their answer. It's like, well, the preacher just tells us what, what to think and what to do. So there's your answer, right? It's, um, it's mind boggling. Mm. You know, we'll rely on what the priest says. We'll rely on what the preacher says. Yeah. But um, I try to remind people, your priest, your preacher is a paid propagandist. Mm -hmm. He or she is paid by the bureaucracy to defend, to uphold your brand, your brand of Christianity. A Catholic priest is not going to stand up at mass and talk about how wonderful Mormonism is. A Catholic priest is not going to is yeah. not going to stand up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and talk about how wonderful the Southern Baptists are. Mm -hmm. uh, trust me, the Southern Baptist is not going to stand up and talk about. We ought to convert to Catholicism because the Pope is right. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Your Go check out the church down the street. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> your priests and your preachers, they are all paid propagandists. That's how they make their living, defending sure. your brand, your brand of Christianity. But mm -hmm. it's up to you as a thinking, logical, rational person to say, wait a minute. Where do these ideas come from? 
-hmm. Where did you get this? And the challenge, I state this a lot in my articles. Please tell us, please tell us where we can find reliable, verifiable, objective data about God. And they start to take a breath and want to answer. We say, but wait a minute. All theists must agree, yes, that's where you can find it. So if, if somebody wants to say, oh, it's in the Bible. Wait a minute. Your Jewish theists don't believe that. Your Muslim theists don't believe that. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's in the visions. Well, do Catholic who believe in the vision, their visions, do they believe in the Mormon visions? Do they believe mm -hmm. in the in the uh, Islamic visions? Right. Was Joseph all Smith the, right? <laughs> all religions around the world are based upon, we've had divisions of the divine. Yeah, revelation. Well, bully for you. But tell us, we want some way to verify what you have claimed. Mm -hmm. Where's the reliable, verifiable, objective data about the gods? You'll never get an answer because mm -hmm. it's all too slippery. Yeah, at some point, it's just all about faith, isn't it? That's what yep, they'll say. Yep. You can get it. You can get away with a lot by. Oh yeah. You know, if well, I start, yeah. I could start a religion tomorrow and say there's a race of sacred men who live in caves on the far side of the moon, a mile underground, and I pray to them every day. Mm -hmm. You're going to get some people who say, oh, I'll take that on faith because look who's saying it. He's believable. Same thing. Revelation. Yeah, the burning in the bosom, as the Mormons have. <laughs> I remember talking to Mormons and, try, you know, when I was an evangelical, I was big into apologetics, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, they, they would always come back to, uh, to how do you know that this is verifiable? Because the Book of Mormon isn't archaeologically accurate and historically accurate and all the rest of it. Well, I had the burning in the bosom. That's what proves that what Joseph Smith did and said and everything in the Book of Mormon is 100% true. You can't argue with that, can you? It's the same kind of slippery well, logic. What you're feeling in your heart, what you're feeling in your bosom is evidence for what you're feeling in your heart. You're feeling in your <laughs> yeah. Circular it's logic. Evidence. It's not evidence for what's real in the, ex in the external reality. Mm -hmm. When we come back from the break with Dr. David Madison, we're going to get into this issue of inspiration of the Bible. Doesn't that answer all the questions, all the problems that the critic might raise against the Bible, specifically the Gospels and the story of Jesus? How could they verify it? Well, because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, of course, even though there weren't eyewitnesses or maybe the eyewitnesses saw something, but it was decades later... What about this issue of inspiration? The Holy Spirit guided the authors of the Bible such that they recorded everything exactly right without any errors or mistakes. Maybe that's the answer. So we're going to get into that as well as the historical reliability of the Gospels, the issue of whether or not Jesus himself even existed, and so much more when we come back with Dr. David Madison. I just wanted to give a quick thank you to John Sailors for being the latest Patreon supporter of the show. As always, if you want to find out how you can become a member of our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group and be a part of our community, the links to the Patreon page are in the show notes. And in fact, speaking of Patreon, now that it's September, our summer break is officially over. We've kind of taken a break on both our patrons-only calls as well as our Mindshift Zoom calls. But now that it's September, we're going to start those up again. We've got our first patrons-only call coming up very soon here. I'm going to be putting out a notification. In fact, as soon as I finish doing this recording now... And I'm going to be contacting David Johnson, who has graciously agreed to be our guest in the month of September 
for our very first Mindshift Zoom call following our summer break. I've also got Frank Schaefer lined up for the month of October, and I'm also going to be speaking with him soon about his brand new book, so look for that coming out as well. And then finally, I'm going to be working on getting Kurt Anderson to come in as our guest maybe in the month of November. In fact, I'm going to be speaking to him this very weekend. As I'm doing this recording now, I've got him booked in. We're going to be talking about his book, Evil Geniuses. And also, I'm super excited about this. I can announce that I've got Seth Andrews, the thinking atheist. He's lined up for next week. We're going to be doing a podcast with him. I've long wanted to have Seth Andrews on the show, so I'm really excited. It turns out, in fact, it was this connection, as I mentioned in the podcast later on, that through David Madison that we connected on Twitter, uh, through this book, actually, that we're talking about now. And so that's how I made the connection with Seth Andrews. So I'm really excited to announce that I'm going to be talking both to Kurt Anderson again, as well as to Seth Andrews on some upcoming episodes here. And then I've also got, I've been in touch with uh, Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. We actually did the recordings a long time ago, but she's had a lot of stuff in the pipeline as of I. So we are actually going to be releasing the dual episodes that we did several weeks back, maybe a month or two ago now, actually, as it, as it turns out. So the first one's going to drop on her show. The second one's going to drop on my show. And I keep saying that, but we keep saying, all right, we're going to get this out eventually. So look for that with Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. So really cool stuff coming up in the pipeline. So look for those episodes coming out, as well as if I get time, I'm hoping to do a standalone episode on Mark Driscoll sort of following up on giving some of the other angles that the Christianity Today podcast isn't covering in their series about Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, and all that. In fact, since that's come out, there's been the one with Josh Harris, and there's been some really disturbing stuff about Mike Cosper and the Sojourn Church Network that he helped plant. He was instrumental in planting that out of Louisville, Kentucky. So there's some really fascinating stuff that's coming out more and more, some of the backstory that he's involved in. So that needs to be included as well. So if I can get some time, I'll try to put together an episode on sort of the backstory of all those things that I've been researching and uncovering. All right, let's get on back into the chat, the second half of this conversation with Dr. David Madison. Let's dive back into his book, 10 Things Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Taught. Well, now you say in your book, I'm kind of chuckled every time I came across this phrase, you say, when you'd raise a problem, you'd say, well, there's a way out. Okay. Christians, now you can breathe a sigh of relief. And I think, okay, here we go. So like, for example, the ending of Mark, yeah. you know, that's a huge problem, you know, picking up serpents and drinking poison. And some traditions do that. I mean, there are snake yeah, yeah. handlers up in the Appalachians and whatever that yeah. actually drink poison, handle rattlesnakes and all the rest of it, because they, they believe that Mark's, at least they're consistent, you know, yeah. they're, they're living out what the text says. But you say, okay, that's that's not in the oldest manuscripts, you know, whoo, sigh of relief. But what about the other sayings that are in those manuscripts? And there is no way out. You have to deal with it, as you say. That's a big problem. Yeah, that's in the chapter on uh, you can do magic. Mm. Uh, but uh, notice the phrasing in that Mark passage in Mark 16, using my name. Right. That's a magic formula. Mm -hmm. A name a sacred name has magical properties. How does that differ from the magical spells you find in Harry Potter? Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, I also use the example of the of the fairy godmother in the uh, yeah Cinderella. Cinderella, she waves her wand and the the pumpkin changes into it into a chariot. 
mm-hmm. into a, a, you know, a yeah, carriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no known way. There's no known mechanism by which that could work. And that's, that's fantasy. And we enjoy mm-hmm. this fantasy as we do Harry Potter. Sure. But then, as I ask in the book, isn't prayer like waving a magic wand inside your head? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is literally magical thinking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, very definition of it, in a way. But people get away with the idea of prayer because it's, um, it's confirmation bias. You count the hits and you discount the misses. Mm-hmm. You, you have a way of excusing the misses. Oh, that wasn't in line with God's, in, in, you know, God's will. It wasn't yeah. his will. I didn't pray hard enough. It might have had unconfessed sin in my life. Could be any, any number of reasons. Any number of reasons why the prayer didn't come true. And it's so disappointing when it isn't, you know, or doesn't come true. Because I can remember having this conversation when I was a, an elder and a pastor at the church in Portland. We needed to hire somebody. And we literally fasted, prayed. We did everything that the Bible says. When you have a tough decision and you can't seem to make an answer what you, or get an answer, you should fast, you should pray in a, in a group. So two or three of us agreed in Jesus' name and all the rest of it. Like you said, we hired this person that seemed to be the right person. Turned out to be an absolutely horrible choice that, you know, screwed the church over. And we had to lock him out of the building a year later. I mean, it was a terrible ending. Anyway, I can remember after all that went down, one of the wives in this group, she said, but I don't understand. I mean, we fasted and prayed. How come it all went so horribly wrong? We did everything right. How come, how come God let us down or something? You know, and she couldn't, it was that cognitive dissonance. You can't get your head around it if you've done everything according to the formula. There was a cartoon going around. It showed showed someone on their deathbed with COVID. Mm -hmm. And the person dying says, I thought you were going to protect me. And Jesus is sitting at the end of the bed and says, I sent a vaccine, stupid. <laughs> exactly. It's become an apocalyptic death cult, a lot of these evangelicals, isn't it? Throwing around verses like Psalm 91 and stuff like that, you know, well, I'm not going to get a vaccine. It's just, it's insanity. It's literally, it is magical thinking. Well, now we've kind of skirted around this. Maybe we should come back to what about this issue of the historicity, the reliability of the gospels? Because once you start down that line, Oh my God, you're in some serious hot water. I mean, one of the first questions that comes up that you do talk about in the book, if the gospels are not historically reliable, what about the historicity of Jesus himself? Mm. Did Jesus even exist as a person? Mm. How can we be sure he did or didn't exist? Well, you can't be sure. Mm -hmm. The very fact that the gospels are so, so heavy with folklore, fantasy, magical thinking, that raises the question, was there somebody genuine behind it? And how do you prove that? Mm-hmm. Now, in chapter 11, which I talk about the four obstacles, one of the first things I mention is, well, here's, here's a test. If you're a reader and you've got a biography on your shelf, I don't care who the biography is, whether it's Madame Curie or mm-hmm. Napoleon, you, uh, you know. Yeah, anybody, any historical figure. Okay. Take that book off the shelf and see what is in the back of the book in terms of cited resources. Anybody that's going to write a biography of Lincoln or Madame Curie or whomever, they've gone to the archives, they've gone to the libraries, they've looked for letters, they've, they've looked for diaries, they've looked for any kind of archival material. The example I use often is Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. If you want to write an accurate depiction of what happened that day, you're going to look for newspaper accounts that, that were published 
within a day or two, you're going to look at, you're going to find letters that were written by people who were there. You're going to, mm -hmm. you're going to look at diaries by people who were there. Yeah, eyewitnesses. That's, that's how historians write history. And even if they find diaries and if they find letters and if they find newspaper accounts, they have to evaluate the accuracy of those. So writing history is a complex thing. None of that, absolutely none, zero, zip, exists for Jesus. The gospels were written decades later. They never named their sources. Um, Luke claims to, uh, mm -hmm. in the first few verses of his, of his gospel, uh, he references, you know, looking, you know, the, the reports of eyewitnesses, but he never names them. Yeah, who are these people? And we know for a fact that Luke copied huge chunks of Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm. did, he did Matthew, Mark, yeah. Did he think Mark was an eyewitness? Mark himself never says that. Mark, it's, Mark was written at least 40 years after, after the events of, of Jesus' life. So mm -hmm. there's no important thing to remember, contemporaneous documentation. If you don't have contemporaneous documentation, you don't have history. Mm -hmm. It's true. But isn't the argument, though, I mean, to push back, I would, they would say, well, David, that's, you're judging ancient history by modern standards. That's not fair. You know, you, of course, we have newspapers and eyewitnesses yeah. that, were, that were at Gettysburg and all the rest of it, uh, people who knew Lincoln and all that. Um, these historians, this is not how ancient history was written anyway. Is that not a fair, you know, uh, a biased sort of a statement? Um, yes and no. Uh, Richard Carrier in his book on the historicity of Jesus addresses this very point. And he points out, I think it's Alexander the Great, for example, historians who wrote about uh, Alexander the Great actually used the testimony of Alexander's own generals. Mm-hmm they wrote reports of his campaigns. Um, so in ancient history writing, some of the modern standards that we accept today were indeed practiced. But that doesn't let Mark and Matthew, Luke and John off the hook. Um, mm -hmm. If they didn't know these methods, they created, they were theologians. They wrote stories to advance their agendas. Uh, and you know that's just one of the biggest problems that people face when they're when they're trying to justify um, the gospels as history. Um, mm -hmm. Randall Helms wrote a book called Gospel Fictions, mm -hmm. in which he makes the point that these are basically religious novels. I call them fantasy literature. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? That you look at the synoptic gospels, you mentioned, okay, if, if, if Luke copied Mark and they think Matthew copied Mark as well, mm -hmm. then the three of those gospels should be pretty similar in terms of the general flow and the agreement mm -hmm. on stories and things like that. I remember when I was teaching at a Bible college, I've shared this story before, but I had the students do an exercise because I would ask, I would kind of set them up. It was kind of mean actually to do this, but I would say, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's all inspired by God. 100% the word of God, 100% accurate. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it is 100%. No, no errors, no discrepancies, no nothing. Right, right. Okay. Take these three passages. And I'd actually printed them off and I would give each student a handout with the three 
And it was the story of Jesus sending out the disciples at one point in his ministry, mm-hmm. you know, and he gives them instructions and so forth. And I'd say, okay, just go through each of these, just lay them on your desk and pick out where they agree and then pick out where they disagree. And some passages are quite a bit longer, some are quite a bit shorter. And at the end of this hour, they'd go through it and they were shocked. And I would say, you know, how come, what accounts for these, in some cases, absolute disagreements in his commands and so forth, some of the specifics, why aren't they all three the same? And they, they, their heads would explode. I mean, these are evangelicals. They just could not, there was no rational explanation for it in their mind. And in that view of the gospels and Jesus, they should all agree, but why don't they, you know, so that's the kind of stuff you're t- describing in the book, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, in the gospel of John, Jesus never sets foot in the water. Mm-hmm. John doesn't want Jesus baptized for the remission of sins. Right. Like I say, he doesn't need, he doesn't need it. In Mark's gospel, the temptation of Jesus, two verses. Mm-hmm. When Matthew got a hold of that, he expanded it, I think, to 11 verses. And he created a conversation between Jesus and Satan. Mm-hmm. And he had Satan acting kind of like Superman. Yeah. Whisking Jesus to the top of the temple. Yeah. Whisking Jesus to a high mountain. Showing him all the kingdoms of the world. And- yeah, yeah. Which is impossible from a mountaintop on a round earth, but that's another issue. Mm. But my question is, this was in the wilderness. Who was there taking notes? Right. Okay, this came out of, out of Matthew's imagination. I mean, I once wrote an article on the Debunking Christianity blog that I called, Who the Hell Hired Matthew to Write a Gospel? <laughs> he undermi- they got ripped he, off. <laughs> he, un- he undermines the resurrection story totally with his story. At the instant Jesus died, many people in their tombs came alive and then on easter morning they yeah, walked around, walked around and yeah okay and even even christian apologists will kind of give you a wink wink well that's <laughs> that, that's a tall tale it uh, couldn't have happened but if that's a it's tall in the gospels tale, if it's a tall tale why isn't the resurrection of jesus itself mm-hmm. a tall tale I've said frequently, Matthew could have made a living writing headlines for supermarket tabloids (laughs) (laughs) because he was a sensationalist. Right. Makes for a good story. He makes for a good story, but uh, it it points out that he's the theologian. He's a he's a creator of religious fantasy literature. He is a propagandist. Mm -hmm. He's not a historian. What about inspiration? Because that's the final refuge of the scoundrel, isn't it? Where you say, okay. All of this stuff was the Bible's inspired by God. God breathed. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. Um, and even as a Christian, uh, like you point out in the book, I can remember like reading through John 14, 15, 16, those long monologues of Jesus that are very detailed and thinking, now, wait a minute, if this was written potentially decades after Jesus's death, resurrection, whatever you want to call it, no longer on the earth, who remembered all this stuff with such specificity? to get it 100% right, for for that matter, any saying of Jesus in any gospel, you know, with any length, had to have been recorded right then and there by somebody, that mythical person following Jesus around. And the answer, of course, always was, well, inspiration. Mm-hmm. And if John couldn't have remembered that all, or whoever the eyewitnesses were, but the aid of the Holy Spirit helped them to remember, so they recorded it all 100% accurately, so we can trust the sayings of Jesus. What about this issue of inspiration. Well, why didn't why didn't the Holy Spirit inspire Mark to include all those mm-hmm. Jesus monologues? Um, 
Yeah, there are no other gospel. There are no other gospel. It was common practice in the ancient world for authors to create speeches for the heroes they wrote about. Right. So insert them in their mouths, essentially. Yeah. 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 They have their right. characters say certain things. But back to the issue of inspiration, this falls under the category of special pleading. Mm. It doesn't have to be history that will satisfy a historian because God inspired it. Okay, that's special pleading. We believe our religion, so we're going to plead the case on the basis of inspiration. Are you willing to grant the same special pleading privileges to Mormonism, mm -hmm. to Judaism, to Islam, or for any of the other scriptures in the world? The priests and preachers of, of the other major and not so major uh, religions of the world will say exactly the same thing about their scriptures. So you've got to grant that if God is in the business of inspiring all of these other scriptures, then the Bible on your altar every Sunday morning, you should expand it. Mm -hmm. Put the Quran in there. Put the Book of Mormon in there. They're mm -hmm. all inspired, right? Well, no, they can't be. Ours is the only inspired one. Special pleading. Special pleading. Can't right. do that. Well, yeah, um, it's also circular logic, isn't it? Because you'll ask an evangelical, how do you know the Bible's inspired? Because it says it's inspired. <laughs> you know, and then you're on that circle, aren't you? Where it's, I know it's true. And I know it's inspired because it says it's inspired. So therefore, it's the word of God. And, 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 and I remember reading an article by John MacArthur, who's, the, who's another real piece of work. I'm sure you're aware of his stuff, but mm. Master's Seminary. And he got in trouble during the, the first COVID lockdown. He's the president of a seminary and he's a pastor of a mega church in Los Angeles for defying COVID bans and all that. But he wrote an article years ago saying that basically the Bible has to be inspired and therefore has to be the word of God because God himself can only tell the truth. He cannot lie. So therefore, because he inspired the authors and you just see the line of logic, you know, the Bible must be true because, you know, and it all goes back to God cannot lie. God cannot tell an untruth. So therefore, you can confidently trust that even your translations have been preserved through the centuries and the millennia, 100%, because which one, <laughs> you know, there's so many manuscript evidences, so many traditions, which one, which one do you want to pick? Well, that's, that's part of the fallacy. God took the trouble to inspire the Bible. So mm -hmm. it's, it's God's genuine word. Okay. How come God didn't take the trouble to preserve the original manuscripts? Right. I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> we, don't, we do not have the original manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They disappeared. Mm -hmm. We just don't have them. They don't exist anymore. Right. Well, they and even if we did, we wouldn't know that they were the originals, would we? It would just be another ancient manuscript. They didn't get it notarized or something, you know, in the first well, century. The first full manuscript of the New Testament dates, I think, to the fourth century. Right. And the Gospels were copied by hand by scribes who didn't have the benefit of electric lighting or eyeglasses. Mm -hmm. And many of them may not have understood the original Greek that they were copying. And it was very common. If they didn't understand something, they might write something in the margin to make a correction. And then the next copyist thought, oh, yeah. there's something that got left out. Let me put it in. <laughs> That's in the original. <laughs> yeah. And so... There are scholars who make their living. This is all they do. They compare old manuscripts. Yeah, textual trying, criticism. Trying to establish what the original manuscript probably said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did that when I studied Hebrew. 
You had to, you had to. And I remember my, my professor, Dr. John Salehammer, he was a world-class Hebrew scholar. He was also an evangelical, but he said, you cannot just read the Masoretic text and accept that as the word of God, because you have to look at all the variant readings down in the textual apparatus at the bottom of every page, you know? So at least he had the integrity to point that out to us as students, that there were multiple manuscript translations and traditions. I think the oldest Masoretic text that is extant is around the year 1000. And right. so very late so, in that sense. So when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered with the Isaiah scroll, they were actually ecstatic that there were so few variations. Mm-hmm. And the way they achieved that, they would count the letters. Mm-hmm. They would count the letters in a chapter, for example, or on a page. This was a way of trying to eliminate errors. If you copied the, the manuscript, and you found that it was one letter short or one letter more, somebody had made a mistake. Right. We got to go back and find where this letter crept in or, or was, was not, not there. Yeah. Exactly. And then you get into the whole issue of translations. You know, there are so many different translations because people are still trying to achieve uh, understanding of what the original said. And it, mm-hmm. you know, the King James was based on manuscripts that have, you know, the better manuscripts have been discovered since the King James was written. So it's a tough thing coming. Well, and then there are purposeful, on-purpose violations of the text, like Luke mm-hmm. 14, 26. Mm-hmm. Some translations just delete the word hate. Mm. Yeah, just too um, strong, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the Message Bible says that translates it instead, unless you let go of your father and your mother. Okay. Right. Not hate. Not hate. It's a big difference. But I, I asked the question in the book, are most Christians today even comfortable with that translation? To but let it's, go. It's dishonesty to, right. to take out the word hate because it's so destructive to your faith. Mm-hmm. It's watering it down. The, watering if that's down. the intent of Jesus to say that. It's dishonest. Mm. Well, I was, yeah, I was going to say back on your point about the manuscript, isn't that that's the, the way out, isn't it? They'll say, we believe that the Bible is inspired in the original manuscripts. Of course, in the next breath, they'll say, of course, we don't have those original manuscripts. <laughs> but what we believe is that the transmission process was accurate enough to where we, in your even in your English translations, that still conveys the message of God, the word of God. So in that sense, they are still the Bible, your new revised standard or new King James version or NIV or whatever. That's just as inspired, you know, but it's that same kind of slippery sort of weaseling logic, isn't it? And why are there 30,000 different brands of Christianity? (laughs) Because there's so little agreement on what these texts mean. Yeah, the nature of the church itself kind of gives the lie to that whole argument, doesn't it? Yeah, my question is, if God inspired the Bible, why didn't he inspire a commentary that has the true meaning of every text? Mm -hmm. I've said God deserves a big fat F for writing the Bible. (laughs) There's so much bad stuff in it. Uh, Would he do any better writing a commentary? A thousand, a million Christians can go into deep prayer and come up with vastly different interpretations of any given text. And claim that each one's right. Each one's right because the other ones are wrong. It came to them in prayer. (laughs) Yeah. Revelation. God (laughs) revealed it. Well, I know you said before that you wanted Christians to read this book. Do you honestly think that Christians will read it? Have you gotten any pushback from evangelicals that have read it so far? I know it's only been out a week or two, but what have you heard so far? Well, when my first book came out in 2016, I did 
for a while, I did a weekly paid boost on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, you pick your audience. Sure. Yeah. Target audience. Target audience. Atheists, agnostics, free thinkers, secular humanists, because I really didn't want to, with my first book, to. I never go on to Christian blogs mm-hmm. to argue for atheism. I never do that. Just my own personal style. I think it would be a waste of time, waste of keystrokes, and I call it bad manners. It would be like me walking into a church on Sunday morning to argue with the minister. Mm-hmm. It's bad manners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even though I chose these <laughs> select target audiences, somehow in Facebook's wisdom, the promotion of my book ended up on Christian timelines. You were going straight after them as far as they were concerned. Yeah, I never respond, but I do copy what they wrote. Right. I put them in a, in a document that I call Dumb Things Christians Say. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting article at some point. Oh, I'm working on that. Um, I'm working on that now for my next week article. Oh, good. This is what one of them said. Okay. Your book is irrelevant. Mind you, he had not read it. Right. I just saw the title and it's irrelevant. Okay. Authentic Christians believe every word which dropped from his lips. Okay. You can't shock us with anything because we already know everything he said. And it is all still standing after being subjected to 2,000 years of criticism. We're still here. We're not going anywhere. Okay. He had not read the book. He was, he was set off by the title of the book, and maybe he read the description of the book on Amazon. But the title of my article will be Dumb Things Some Christians Say, because right. some of not them all. are not this closed-minded. Mm-hmm. Mind you, what he just said, this is the ideal mindset for demagogues, tyrants, and church bureaucrats who want to keep people believing. Mm-hmm. Keep them in Monument, mind. The monumental Christian bureaucracy. They don't want people thinking about these things. Priests and preachers are just as happy that people don't read the Bible. Sure. Because of all these things they will come across. But yeah, I I get the pushback from the Christians because they don't like to have anything. Eternal life hangs in the balance. Yeah, it's all or nothing now, David. Okay. And if they've latched on to Jesus as the guarantee of that, Mm -hmm. which is not all that clear, by the way, in Matthew 25 the last judgment scene, you avoid getting tossed into eternal fire if you feed the hungry, if you visit those in prison, if you dress those who are naked, etc., etc. But it says nothing there about believing in Jesus. It seems like a workspace thing, doesn't it? it, it, Exactly. Totally workspace then. Where's the faith? Where's the belief? And when the, the rich young man came up to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? sell what you have and give to the poor. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the gut feeling I think most people have. How do I get to heaven? You'd be nice. You'd be generous. You'd be a kind person. Mm -hmm. And then you bump into a text like what we find in John chapter six. John doesn't have the Eucharist at the last supper. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. But in chapter six, after the story of the feeding of 5,000, then you come across this utterly ghoulish text about you will get eternal life if you drink my blood mm-hmm. and if you eat my flesh. He goes into detail about that, and it's yeah. disgusting. And then in Romans 10, chapter 9, if you say with your lips and you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you will be saved. So the New Testament stuff is not consistent on right. how you... Which is it? Well, you, you, eternal life. you point out in the book as well that 
look at the parables, they are specifically designed in almost every case to conceal as much as they reveal. That's that's a rhetorical device, isn't it? And now you say, yeah, wait more. a minute, why doesn't Jesus, why isn't he more clear? Because even his disciples have to go to him on multiple occasions, according to the narrative, and say, what in the world was that about? And he said, I will explain it to you only. But for the rest of them, it's actually designed so they won't get it. And you yeah, think, well, that's not an inclusive gospel. That's not a way to make it more clear. It's to obfuscate it. Well, my challenge to Christians, read the gospel of Mark straight through. And let me give you a pop quiz. Hmm. What are some of the big problems in the gospel of Mark? And that chapter four is certainly one of them. He taught only in parables and he interprets the parables privately for disciples. In John, there are no parables. What? It doesn't make sense that the parables are meant to to confuse people. I mean, the other parables in the other gospels, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I mean, it has a powerful point to it. And in Luke 14, the parable of the great banquet, everyone's welcome at my table. Mm-hmm. That has a great, that's, that's a wonderful story. But then Luke, he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You may be welcome no matter your social status, but don't get the wrong idea. In order to be a disciple, you have to hate your family. You have to hate your life. We don't want people with divided loyalties in this cult. Mm. Okay. So, you know, the sayings of Jesus are, they're a mess. <laughs> that's one way to put it. Well, the title of the book, just so if, if people can't remember, 10 Things Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Taught and Other Reasons to Question His Word is out now. How can people find you on social media? Obviously, they can buy the book on Amazon because I bought it on Kindle as a Kindle version. You can buy the paperback as well, can't you? Yeah, and the Audible is in process. Ah, yes. In fact, that reminds me just this morning when I got up, I had tweeted that I was going to talk to you and Seth Andrews yes. uh, mentioned he said, oh, I'm going to be doing the audible version of that book. Yes, yes, yes. So that's something. I mean, Seth Andrews has an amazing DJ quality voice that we all wish we had. You know, so that'll be an amazing thing when it does come out. Yeah. Seth Andrews uh, narrating it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's done most of it. And I've heard the narration. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's so good. By the way, the books, the book itself has its own website. Right. OK. So what's the web address they can go to to find it? www.badthingsjesustaught.com. Right, so there's more resources. And you'll find the table of contents there, and you'll find that chart of 292 bad, mediocre, alarming Jesus statements. And you'll find the Amazon uh, links to Mm -hmm. this book and to my... Your other works. And I know, yeah, you mentioned you do a lot of writing for the Debunking Christianity blog you write an article every week pretty much where where can people find that that's www.debunking hyphen christianity just do a search for debunking christianity yeah you'll find it blog just do a google search and you'll find it all right i'll put the links to all of that in the show notes so thank you so much david and again thank you to tim sledge for helping you edit this book and get it out it's definitely a thought-provoking read i thoroughly enjoyed it just in the last couple of days going through it so thank you so much you're quite welcome. And by the way, where are you from? I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, but I've lived over here in the UK for almost 16 years now. I was going to say, I, I, I'm not detecting any British accent. At all. <laughs> That's true. But my youngest daughter, she's got a weird mix of all sorts of people from here. They say, where are you from? Because they can't figure out. She picked up a lot. You know, but I've, I've never had a, uh, any sort of British accent. But what I do know are a lot of the, the British slang and uh, that's what we pick up on. So, 
you have to kind of be able to navigate the language in one way or another. Okay, this has been loads of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. We'll speak to you again. Okay, bye-bye.